And today, we are continuing on with our sermon series, The Theories of Relativity. And this morning, Simon's going to preach for us, and he has worked so hard. And I'm excited to hear it. I was reading the scripture, and I can't wait to see what God has prepared in his heart. So our scripture this morning is from 2 Timothy chapter 3. And it says this, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, and not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than God having a form of godliness but denying its power, and have nothing to do with such people. May God add the blessing to the reading of this word and the blessing to the rest of our time. Let us pray. God, this morning, as we read these words and we hear these, let these words reflect on our hearts. God, we, we ask your name on the blessing of this. In your name we pray. Amen. Good morning. My name is Simon Campbell. I'm the Director of Worship and Technology here at Marion Methodist. Uh, Pastor Mike is in Des Moines this weekend. Uh, He's got his youngest grandbaby getting baptized this morning, so it's a wonderful time uh, for their family. But we're here, and we're going to continue our sermon series about the theories of relativity And really what this sermon series is about is it's taking topics of tension within our culture and identifying how the gospel calls us to live into that tension. This morning we're talking about a buzzword that's going around now, but it's nothing really all that new. It's a a philosophy of life called self-love. And Kelsey said, uh, mentioned that she was super excited about this scripture passage and uh, But it it really begins with a very nasty list of attributes, right? Um, Pretty bleak. There will be terrible times in the end days. And uh, first we're we're like, okay, yeah, at the end of the world, terrible people. Okay, got it. Um, But the end of the passage reveals that the church is included in this list. When it says that uh, these people are having, having a form of godliness but are denying its power. So this list applies to the church. And the word that Paul uses here to, uh, for the form of God- godliness is a Greek word, uh, morphosis. Why don't you try saying that? Morphosis. <laughs> You're all biblical scholars now. Congratulations. There you go. Uh, but that's, the, that's the, the Greek word that Paul uses here means having um, an appearance casually assumed or taken on to deceive. So that's what we're talking about, this empty godliness that's um, it's, it's, it's an appearance casually assumed or taken on to deceive, but it doesn't have any power. Um, it's not transforming our lives. It has no usefulness or utility in the world. It's kind of like this windowsill. Take a look at this picture. So on the right-hand side, you can see all the wood is rotted out, 
and it's, it's disintegrating, it's crumbling, it's not useful for anything. That, but the, the paint on the left-hand side of the window is covering up that rot really nicely. But when it comes down to it, this windowsill is not going to keep water out. It's not going to hold the window together, and it's certainly not going to keep cold breezes from coming into the house. And that's what this empty godliness is like. It's like taking uh, paint and covering up uh, this rotten list of attributes. It has no utility. It has no usefulness in the world. And that's what this scripture passage is talking about. And there's a uh, Barna research group that studies the, the church and um, the church in culture. And one of the things they found is that uh, the, the Christian church is a lot like this window in many ways because uh, they, they took a lot of studies and statistics comparing the lives of Christians and non-Christians. And, and here's some of what they found. These studies showed little, if any, difference exists between Christians and non-Christians in percentages regarding addiction, divorce, volunteerism, or giving. They, fi- they did say that although born-again Christians are more likely to volunteer for their church, they are no more likely than the average person to help the poor or the homeless. And interestingly enough, we're also one of the least likely groups to recycle. And so you might be saying, okay, well, this is, these are, okay, that's the average Christians. Okay, that's over across the, the whole uh, United States. Well, but what about the super Christians, those pastors? They're doing really good, right? Well, the same study found that these pastors, pastors are not immune either. 50% of pastors' marriages end in divorce. So this is this form of godliness, this morphosis godliness, having the appearance of godliness, but none of its power. But the gospel calls us to godliness that does have power to transform our lives, not only in what is displayed to the world, but is useful in service. The gospel calls us to shift from self-loving to self-giving. So we're going to talk about three things this morning uh, regarding self-love. We're going to talk about what self-love is. What does this buzzword, this philosophy mean We're going to talk about why self-love is deficient and harmful for the Christian life and what the scriptures have to say about it. And then lastly, we'll talk about how you can gain the strength and inspiration to shift from self-love to self-giving. So first, what is self-love? Dr. Andrea Brandt is a psychotherapist and psychologist in uh, the California area, and she defines self-love this way, this philosophy. Self-love means having a high regard for your own well-being and happiness. Self-love means taking care of your own needs and not sacrificing your well-being to please others. Self-love means not settling for less than you deserve. And there are lots of examples of this self-love mentality, whether it's in articles or books, and so I'm going to read a few of these for you this morning. First one, you, may choo- you, you must choose to be happy, grateful, and fulfilled. If you make that choice every single day, regardless of where you are or what's happening, you will be happy. 
To fall in love with yourself is the first secret to happiness. Another one says, decide, what, decide that you care more about creating your magic and pushing it out into the world than you do about how it will be received. If you aren't good at loving yourself, you will have a difficult time loving anyone since you'll resent the time and energy you give another person that you aren't even giving to yourself. And lastly, you are in control of your own life. You get one and only one chance to live, and life is passing you by. Stop accepting less than you deserve. Now you might say, okay, Simon, hold on, pump the brakes here a little bit. These are books and articles that are out in the secular culture. This is not something that exists within the Christian church. Well, three out of the five of these quotes, including this last one, comes from um, a Christian author named Rachel Hollis. And um, our culture has lifted her up as one of the primary examples for Christian women in our time. So this is not something that's, just, that's foreign to this church. This idea of self-love is very much ingrained in the North American church today. And uh, to kind of summarize what all this self-love means, I've kind of come up with three, three um, basic beliefs or main tenets of what self-love means. First, self-love believes that loving yourself is the key to happiness regardless of circumstances. Secondly, self-love believes that loving yourself is the key to being able to love others. And lastly, self-love believes that loving yourself means taking what you deserve out of life. But there are, there are many reasons why self-love is deficient and harmful for the Christian life. And there's a lot that scripture has to say about it. The first thing is that the first reason that self-love is deficient and harmful for the Christian life is because self-love rests entirely on your own sufficiency. Entirely rests on your own sufficiency. Self-love places all of our hopes, all of your hopes, in the frailty of your own flesh and personality. And even though self-love will promise that oh, if, I, if, if, you, if I love myself, if I affirm myself, and if I think positively about myself, I will be insulated when bad things happen, when difficult things happen to me. And while that promise is, is put out there, when, when difficult things happen, rather than insulating you, self-love really only isolates you. It makes you even more dependent on your own abilities and your own strength. Psalm 73 verse 26 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength and portion forever. So why would we choose to place our hope in ourselves when we can place our hope in an all-sufficient, all-powerful God? Why would we choose to place our hope in our own frailty when we can place our hope in His strength? Why would we ever choose to rely on our inconsistencies when we can rely on His steadfastness? Why would we choose to obey our always shifting and ever-changing desires rather than serving the, all, the unchanging all-sufficient God. Second reason, self-love is deficient and harmful for the Christian life is because self-love rests on the illusion of control. Self-love says you are in charge of your own life. 
you can, by the, the force of your will, can uh, manipulate your circumstances to make your life awesome. If only you think, if only you think positively and, and, and affirm yourself. Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to Him, and He will make your paths straight. The scripture says that rather than trying to survive and put all that pressure on yourself to manipulate your circumstances by the strength of your own will, this scripture passage says, submit to God who is the only one who actually has the ability to organize and to straighten your paths. Last, self-love is deficient and harmful for the Christian life because self-love prioritizes yourself at the cost of others. Self-love is built on self-entitlement. How many of us had said, oh, you know, I've worked really hard today. I deserve that shake. Or I deserve to go on that vacation. Or I deserve to, you know, fill in the blank. Whatever that means. Self-love is built on self-entitlement. And when we, when, we, when we embrace this idea fully, we begin to believe that there's really nothing that we don't deserve. Right? Enough is never enough. And it leads to this anxiety over what we have, that somehow what we deserve is being taken away from us by those less deserving. Philippians chapter 2 verses 3 through 4 says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Here's the beautiful thing about God's vision for his kingdom. If we do what Philippians 2 says, and we're looking to the needs of others before our own, and collectively all of us are looking to the needs of others, it's inevitable that our own needs will be met. Maybe not by us, it might be by somebody else in a different way, but by God's grace, our needs, our own needs will be met. You see, and I, I, I think it's easy to think somehow that, well, if we're, if we're rejecting self-love, are we rejecting self-esteem? self-esteem? Are we saying, well, we can't really think any of our, anything of ourselves and we have to be completely self-deprecating and, just, and, and totally uh, go that route? Well, the opposite of self-love is not self-loathing. The opposite of self-love is not self-loathing. It does not mean that you have no self-esteem. Because God places an incredibly high value on you. Did you know that? God places an incredibly high value on you. You are precious to Him. And if you've ever wondered that, or ever questioned that, all you need to do is open the Bible. This is God's love letter to humanity, of how throughout the ages, throughout all time, He is pursuing a relationship with us, crossing barrier after barrier, even coming down to earth in flesh to experience all of our pain, all of our suffering, to suffer an unjust trial, death, and, and is resurrected into life so that you could experience relationship with Him. 
So it is absolutely not our right to place a low value on what God treasures. The opposite of self-love is not self-loathing. It's humility. The opposite of self-love is not self-loathing. It's humility. Now, some of you remember Pastor Keith, and I don't know if this is actually his quote or not, but I'll give him credit for it. Um, And he used to say this thing, and I really liked it. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So we've looked at this self-love and what it means and and why it's deficient and harmful for the Christian life. But how then do we gain the strength and inspiration to shift from self-love to self-giving? Jesus makes it very simple. He was asked a similar question to this, and this this is what his answer was. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the greatest commandments that Jesus gave to us. Gospel godliness. Godliness that isn't just paint over a rotten windowsill. Gospel godliness that has power to transform our lives and impact the world around us and serve others in real utility. That godliness is founded on loving God above all else. So here are some of the key characteristics of loving God. Loving God is the key to joy regardless of circumstances. Not self-love. Loving God is the key to joy regardless of circumstances. You see, when I accept God's love for me and place my hope in Him, it doesn't matter what my circumstances are. It doesn't matter what comes against me because I am placing my hope in an eternal fortress that cannot be shaken. It doesn't matter if everything that I have is destroyed or my very life is taken from me. My hope is placed in God and it is outside the reaches of anything that could harm me. Nothing can steal that hope. Romans 8.38, I've loved quoting this passage. It says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God doesn't promise us better life circumstances. We might think that sometimes. We might think that if we follow God, everything will just work out for us. But that's not what God promises. But what He does promise is that even when we encounter difficult circumstances, which we inevitably will, we will not be destroyed by them because our hope is in Him. Proverbs 14, 32 says, When calamity comes, the wicked are brought down, but even in death, the righteous seek refuge in God. Loving God is also the key to loving others. Not self-love, but loving God is the key to loving others. When we love God, it decenters ourselves. And we're free to love others 
in the way that they deserve. I don't have to worry about loving myself because God loves me more than I ever could. Does that make sense? God loves me. He knows me more than I could ever love myself, more than I even know myself. I don't have to worry about it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Loving God means giving God and others what they deserve. Loving God means giving God and others what they deserve. Loving your neighbor as yourself, that's a radical command. That's kind of crazy. It's really weird. You don't see it very often. That's a radical command. It does not mean start liking yourself so that you can like others. Loving your neighbor as yourself means to be as concerned about the happiness and well-being of others as you are about your own. That's crazy. Do you, do you want a meal? Are you ever hungry? Do you ever desire to eat? Well, then you should desire that for others. Do you ever experience pain or get sick and you want to see those things alleviated? Well, then you should want that for other people too. Do you want a safe place to sleep, to rest? Well, then you should want that for other people as well. Make the desires that you have for your own comfort and security and success and happiness the measure of how intensely, creatively, and consistently you desire and pursue these things for others. That's what this shift is all about. That's what shifting from self-love to self-giving is. Make the desires that you have for your own comfort and security, success, and happiness the measure of how intensely and creatively and consistently you desire and pursue those things for others. That is the vision. That is the call for Christians. That is the form of godliness that has power to transform our own lives and transform the world. I'd like to close with a prayer from St. Francis of Assisi. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive and it is, in, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it's in dying that we are born to eternal life. May this be true in our own lives, Father. Amen.